0: Welcome to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Jenna Kelly as she explores the lasting psychological and emotional bonds between individuals. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network and join the Attachment Theory in Action podcast Facebook group.
1: Well, hey there, my Attachment Theory in Action podcast listeners and viewers. I'm your host, Jenna Kelly, and I hope this interview finds you well, wherever you are listening or watching it today. And I am in complete awe of the interview I just got to have with Dr. Jennifer Mullen. My body is still buzzing. She is lovingly called the Rage Doctor, and she's so many more things that I don't think this in introduction will even do her justice. But what I, one of the things I love about this interview is that she shares so much of herself in our conversation her wholeness, her humanity, her vulnerability, for why she does the work. It's all there for you to hear. So let me just tell you a little bit more about her. So she is a colonial consciousness crusher an ancestral wound worker, a scholar activist, an international speaker, an author, she's trained as a clinical psychologist, she's an intergenerational and historical trauma alchemist, and a paradigm smasher. She is the author of the upcoming book, Decolonizing Therapy, Oppression, Historical Trauma, and Politicizing Your Practice. It comes out next week, depending on when you're listening to this, on November 7th. And I highly recommend that you consume this book. She offers such a deep gift of powerful truths that need to be shared that help us think about the ways that racism and inequities and oppression are so embedded in the systems that many of us work in or work with and we talk about how she really discovered this in her own training and in her own work and why she is speaking out on this and adding more about what's needed both from a kind of a macro level down to a micro level we just barely skimmed the surface because there's so much there in this interview so you'll have to check out her book Uh, Dr. Mullen was also featured in Allure, GQ, The Today Show, Cosmopolitan, The Calgary Journal, and she received the Essence Magazine's 2020 Essential Hero Award in the category of mental health. And, you know, now she's just sitting down with me for our podcast, which is why I'm so grateful. In December 2017, she created the Decolonizing Therapy Instagram, which has grown a really large, enthusiastic following and has helped profoundly shift the world's understanding of therapy and mental health. And that's how I discovered her a few years ago when I started following her. She just shook my world. And I hope she does the same for you in good and needed and powerful ways. So sit back and enjoy, and I hope that you learn and unlearn and relearn with me as Dr. Jen says. Thank you.
0: The Knowledge Center at Chattuck is a tremendous resource for therapists, educators, business and organizational leaders, and anyone curious about trauma-informed care. At TKCChattuck.org, you'll find information about registering for our professional development courses like the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute, Adult Attachment Interview Workshops, or the Nonprofit Leadership Academy. You'll also find a library of Chattuck publications in the TKC store, including the entire Michael Trout book and video collection. Visit TKCChattuck.org for videos, articles, workshops, and podcasts in the arena of attachment and trauma-informed care.
1: Hello, Dr. Jen. It is a true honor to be joining you in conversation today. I am sending you the warmest welcome. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for joining me today on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me, Jenna. It is such a pleasure and I'm so excited to talk about this.
1: Yeah, me too. I have been following you on Instagram for several years and just kind of fangirl you and the work that you're doing and the messaging and the truths that you're putting out in to the world it's their truths that we need to hear and so i just you know slid into your dms and (laughs) you said yes (laughs) i'm just truly so excited that you're here and we can talk about your new book decolonizing therapy um and especially how that relates to attachment yeah. Before before we do though, I want to bring more of you and your own attachment into this conversation. I mean, it's already there, but let's let's bring it in with some intention. And so, I would invite you to please share an attachment memory that feels important to you and to your work.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. I love this question, by the way. Um, I would say one of my fondest memories, and actually my mother was just reminding me of this, um, going to, like, I would beg her to go to bookstores, like beg. Um, So I was a kid that was indoors a lot for a lot of different reasons. Um, One of them was mostly because my mother felt safer with us indoors unless she was around. And you can imagine growing up how that then became a problem (laughs) because I wanted to be free. But um, I did naturally love reading and writing so much. And I had a really, really rich fantasy world where I'd play with like an array of spoons. I'm talking like up until like 10, 11, like we're not talking just little kids, paper dolls. Like I had a really, really rich fantasy world. And I remember begging her um, around my birthday to go to a bookstore. And she was like, okay, you know, we'll, (laughs) we'll go to the bookstore. And I remember seeing, I think one of the newer, I don't know if it was like Sweet Valley High or Nancy Drew. I was obsessed with all of it. Um, or babysitter's Club. I don't even remember. I actually now I do remember as I'm saying this. Isn't that funny? Wow. Um, it was uh, actually Lord of the Flies. Mm. Yeah, that was one of my favorite books that the outsiders like I was very particular and I would reread other than those series that I mentioned before mm-hmm. so I pick it up and my mother's like what is that about <laughs> and she, it see the little violet thing you you're a little young and I'm like no 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 I want to read this I want to read this I want to read this and um I said to her the, to the woman she's like oh you know you're a voracious reader or something like that but the, the person that we were at the checkout And I said, yeah, I'm going to have a book in here one day, too. And the woman says to me, now, mind you, I was born in 78. So this is happening around the 80s. (laughs) And uh, the woman goes, oh, well, first you'll be a mom and you'll get married. Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And even at a very little age, I was like, Oh no, 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 no. That's all like secondary. I don't know if those are my exact words, but like, that's all, that's all like after I write my book, like my mission in this world is to write about things that people need so that they can get better and be happier. And so um, that's sort of like my attachment memory because mom is always and constantly reading to me um, growing up and, English is not her first language, you know, but she, she would practice in her own and, and also teach me. And then she, they said at like four or five years old, when my brother was a baby, I would read to him, even though I didn't know the words. And I couldn't really read. I would like remember what my mom said and then like repeat all of that and like come up with characters names and be very dramatic as I am. Um so that's my memory. That's my memory. I touch my memory.
1: Mm, goosebumps already. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Jen. And it sounds like you had a mother who was very supportive of your your love of learning yeah. and also protective. And I wonder if you could speak more to that, because I feel like there's a lot of that in your work and in your book, too,
2: yeah um so i suppose that you know my, my mother's so my mother's side culturally and racially are um black latina like panamanians right and so there's also indigenousness there on my grandmother side and then on my paternal side with my mother um directly african and what i find super fascinating is that my grandfather you know did all this amazing like i think it was like accounting work or something to that to that nature um because his stories would always change and be so wonderful and my grandfather's like my favorite person in the world he's since passed um But he would always say, like, I came to this country and then brought over your mother and everyone else so that education could be really important. But he would say, even when I didn't understand it, but you have to question everything. Mm
1: -hmm. Like,
2: don't just take anything at face value. And my mom on the other end, and she will laugh about this and agree, is much more her words, not mine. A little bit more chicken, <laughs> a little bit more like no, keep it safe. Don't be as problematic. Don't rock the boat. And so I'm sharing this because I think what's with we might be feeling the threat of in my book is growing up with a grandfather who's very clearly saying, oh these Americans, like you know." Like, you know, they come into our country, they put down our army bases, and then they take away our income. And he's talking about colonization, right? Like, at its core, right? And and, um, I remember being in Panama very, very young and going to the store with him and just asking, like, why are there bars on all these houses, right? Why is there so much of this? Why is there so much of that? And why is there a little boy with a machine gun in the air? Why are people protesting, Mm -hmm. right? Like, it was a different world for me then perhaps for others. And so I think my mother um, wanted to protect me from as much as possible and also let me know that she had gone through some experiences coming to this country, what is now known as the United States, right? And that it wasn't easy for her, Mm -hmm. you know, and that she had to, again, not her words, assimilate, you know, in order to fit in and that she never really felt like she fit 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 in and so um migration trauma um to me is really significant because there is this sense of asking what is home with a capital h
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, there is this sense of is home in a person is it in myself is it in source spirit otherness is it in the work that i do um and what does it mean when it feels like I can't either easily go back to my land or place or space where other people mirror me in some way? They might have a different skin color, they might speak a different language, or maybe I don't know my mother tongue, speaking hypothetically. But I do think that there is something there to visiting places and spaces where you do not consistently feel wrong, bad, uglier, unattractive, right? And so for me, that also brings up a lot around right children, bullying, right? Where they feel loved, where they feel okay, especially when other folks might not look as, um, might not look like you, period. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so I hope I answered your question. I know I kind of.
1: Yes, I think you really beautifully illustrated this attachment dilemma that a lot of parents and caregivers have, but especially those parents and caregivers who may be BIPOC or may come from communities that have been intentionally neglected and oppressed. And thank you for your book for helping me think about even our languaging around this, where I would normally say, you know, marginalized communities but saying communities that have been intentionally marginalized Mm. um so what i think the dilemma is is so challenging and i it just makes me feel for your mom is that you want to develop and strengthen this secure and loving attachment with your child and help them to feel safe and seen and loved, and also knowing that the world that she's preparing you to live in, and also her own experiences of her, you know her own traumas and resiliencies and all of that um, impacted as well. That that the world may not always be. A safe place yeah it wasn't for her and it yeah. may not be for you because of your skin color or gender or mm-hmm. where you came from all of that and it, it's just such a, a challenge and i think your book is like a call to action because i think too often it gets placed on the the individual parent or caregiver to solve like your mom was trying to do yes
2: yes exactly thank you for beautifully reframing it as well um you know what what this also brings up for me as you're talking is uh let me see if i can get the words around this right this the part of the attachment process in which the caregiver the parent is not yet fully how do i say this without i'm just fully emotionally developed in a way that is congruent with the country or society or culture in which they're dropping into. Mm -hmm. Meaning, um, and and again, this isn't, maybe it it came across as I'm saying it, like a little um, infantilizing for my mother. And it's not at all because she's a brilliant, strong woman. But rather, she'll frequently say, oh, back home, I got to play a lot even if I was older right back home yes we worked really hard and school was multiple times a day not just once right but we get to go home we all got to spend time together and eat together laugh argue whatever it was the family was important and so attachment attachment right you know thinking about all of this that's what I mean there was so much intelligence there emotional intelligence um that familial um weaving and and breeding and, and kind of like coming together yet then coming to the states she doesn't always utilize these words but some of what i hear in what she's saying and then when i ask questions she's like yeah that's right or i'm like i reframe it for her (laughs) and she said and so what i sense is that she had to become adult and serious really fast Mm right she came over about um 13 12 13 years old which are significant years as we know you know we we're like kind of coming out of the latency age into adolescence and um she also realized that she felt extremely naive and extremely Um, that she had to hide any kind of immigrant status because she could immediately pass, right, as Black American. So then she also had to contend with, wait, what is a Black American? Like, what does that mean to me? Like like having to use different terminology and then even deal with her own internalized bias Mm -hmm. as a migrant right you know um so there was a lot of that happening and what i noticed as well is there was a sense of she would continue to say you know i was very attached to my mommy she would say this to me a lot. And I thought if I kissed a boy at 15, I would get pregnant. She would tell me this all the time. <laughs> I was like, wait, you were 15, 16. And you believe this? She said, yes, I did. I know, right? The thought of this. And so she said, so as you started to grow up, and you're asking me very direct questions. As you could guess, I was very precocious and loquacious. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're like wanting to read things and see things and you would see something on TV and ask what that's about. And I would blush and, you know, you were just picked up on everything. So she would say, you were a little like scientist, psychologist at a very young age. You didn't miss anything. And I said, well, I wonder if that was because I was also protective of you. Mm. Right, and so sometimes you know, me and my mom will joke, This is the first lifetime that I'm the daughter. <laughs> mm. Maybe that's a different podcast, but
1: <laughs> very relevant to attachment, yes, yeah, yeah, mm. yes. And her age, like you said, when she migrated to the U.S., of I'm sure some things that got stuck, and yeah. so maybe you were trying to help her unstick through your understanding and development and how, you know, that, that may have been a gift to your mom, but I also wonder if that felt, how that felt for you.
2: Yeah. Um, I didn't notice because honestly, my mom is uh, such my gosh. I know a lot of people, not everyone, as we know, and I'm very fortunate and privileged to say that I have an amazing, amazing mom, but I do, you know, and so making our Halloween costumes, hating her when she made me sit down right after school to like do homework every single day. Mm-hmm. Um making me do circles for my penmanship <laughs> with pencil and paper, hated it, crying when we we're doing math problems, I math is not my forte, um, you know, so yeah, I would get in trouble because you can probably guess, like, they would be like, oh, Jennifer's so good in school and so intelligent and her writing is so amazing, however, she doesn't shut up <laughs> and we moved her and she keeps talking or she keeps getting out of her seat. And so probably what we understand is ADHD. Um, I had at a very, very young age, very, very young age. And I think that that aided my creativity. And so, um, my mother fed that creativity, you know, um, taking us places, museums, library. I loved the library as a kid, as I said, but I loved being able to have like library circles, Um, listening to someone read, you know, and so I didn't feel it so much as a child because a great deal of, again, thinking about childhood, my attachment needs were met, food, fresh food every day, even if all she had was like rice and beans, and we didn't have money for meat, you know, because my parents were pretty much like maybe working poor, you know, working class, like very working poor, but there were, there were tough times. And so money was always a thing Um, but i don't think it was until maybe my teenage years and early teenage years early adolescence where things started to get rough because i always had a mind of my own but this time you know, here I am holding all of this rage that no one is talking about within our family system. And my father is very comfortable with his rage, very opposite of my mom, right? And um, here I am acting out my feelings, right? Here I am uh, acting out what I can't talk about. Here I am trying to communicate something that I can feel, but there's no words as far as my life is concerned and the people around me, um, there was no use your words. There was no, (laughs) right. There was no, well, it's okay. You can cry. Um, I think I grew up, not everyone, right. But my, the people around me culturally and generationally, um, it was very much traditional. We grew up very Catholic, Mm -hmm. you know? And so that also played a role. And I remember like having to go to catechism classes, um, And going, I got in trouble for this, by the way, and and going and we were doing like, I don't know, what's that called? Like your not your first communion before that. It's like your first penance. And I say to the priest, I go inside and I'm like, he's like, Oh, you know, whatever he says to me, you know, like, basically repent, you know, or like, what's your penance? What's your first penance? And I'm like, I don't have one. I'm a kid this is ridiculous i'm not getting on my knees in front of you you're a guy this is weird
1: <laughs>
2: right And i was just like this is weird time out i want to get out of here and my mother was like oh. my grandmother they almost fell on the floor they couldn't believe it yeah so um yeah my adolescence I was a lot. I got in trouble a lot. I heard a lot of people. I said a lot. I did a lot. And then I think even into my twenties, it was. Dang, it just shifted to psychology. You know, it's shifted to counseling. It shifted to. I love this so much. Um, a peer education group saved my life, and and um and grad in uh, not grad school. I'm sorry, undergrad. I talk about it all the time. Years later, I went on to. Be the facilitator of this group for 13 years. Um, so it was very full circle. Um, but group is my favorite modality. Group, <laughs> hands down, is my modality. And so I healed in group. And I love witnessing the possibility of healing arise in group because to me, it shows us that there's the power of attachment and healthy reattachment, right? And healthy connection um, without merging. With some boundaries, guidelines, hopefully a healthy facilitator or two that is also, you know, role modeling and showing what healthy connection looks like in some ways. And so oftentimes I felt like I was being reparented in that group, as well as then went on. Definitely a lot of them feel like my children or nieces or nephews <laughs> in some way. Yeah.
1: Yeah, what a reparative experience. And I think groups offer the ability to do that more in community because there's a lot that we can do one-on-one, but I think your book also really speaks to this so beautifully is that we need to be in community because a lot of these traumas we've experienced collectively as well. So we need to collectively heal them. So one of the questions I was going to ask you, Dr. Jen, which you already kind of started us on that journey is that You know, I introduced you before we started talking about all your credentials and you are very well educated and well trained as a clinical psychologist. And you've got a lot of work experience working with individuals, families and communities from all over this country and from other countries. And yet you recognize because of that training, because of the work you were doing, that there is something really deeply missing. This is not enough. And this is not the full picture. And hearing your background and, you know, that just added so much context, but keep going with this journey and how that has now led to the the work that you're doing, the book that you wrote
2: yeah thank you you're such a great interviewer can i give you that affirmation <laughs> you're a great podcast
1: speaking my my love language thank you so much
2: yeah words of me too i'm a words yeah. of affirmation person. yeah <laughs> um because you're really making it easy for me to just like unravel it, it's really fascinating. Um, So I would say that it was there at the peer education program because it was facilitated by a clinical psychologist. Ah, I think he was a counseling psychologist. He worked at the university, um, male-identified, openly gay-identified, and uh, a white man, you know? And we were majority kids of color, Right. Majority like Dominican, Puerto Rican, you know, Black, Caribbean, Arab, Filipino, like Jersey City, New Jersey, where I grew up is highly like super naturally diverse. We're so close to the city. Um, and there were times that we would sit there in group and look at him and say like, OK, John, are you writing a book about us? Like, why are you asking all these questions? we like, was so defensive. And I definitely came into undergrad with a chip on my shoulder Feeling like I'm not gonna get far. I'm not gonna go to school for a long time. Ha ha! Jokes on me. <laughs> <laughs> and instead, I was so I was an education major. With let me see if I can get this right. Oh my gosh! Feels like eons ago. My twenties, right? I was a um, elementary ed and education major and then i shifted to secondary and secondary ed in english and then i realized what am i doing i i'm in love with psychology like i am so deeply in love with this it doesn't feel like i'm like i'm having to learn it feels like i just get to be who I am and I think that I was already a very highly sensitive child I'd cry when we would see like dead animals on the side of the road Um, I would cry deeply when like the end of a book series was finishing I still do I don't hide it this time you know so I think that I was already extremely neurodivergent and at the same time I saw things I knew things Mm -hmm. you know Um, and so I don't think that they always believed me and I don't think the world believed me but here I came into this peer ed group and of course I didn't give any of that right away right no time soon not even in a year year and a half but I slowly started to allow some of the armor to melt at a pace that was often good for me but often where the group facilitator, John, was pushing my growing edge, not just me, but many of ours. And my relationship with others allowed me to see that there's other ways of being that are not snarky all the time or nasty, or like I started looking up to my peers that actually seemed to know how to do relationship. Right. And because of my own childhood trauma and the ways that I was engaged with as a child, I assumed that love always equated that there's going to be some sort of hurting and then apologizing and there's like a cycle and there's drama and it's intense and, you know, and um, I was on a track to feeling like, well, I just don't trust and like guys, you know, like I was on this track of like evil (laughs) and all my rage was directed that way. But, Um, John started to give me a really reparative experience, you know, and was just like, never loud or inappropriate or harmful or, um, and if someone disagreed, he would listen, reflected back, there was also a humanity. So he was already shifting the model, I think, in psychology. And work right but gently it was a little different <clears throat> so then fast forward years later I'm in partial care at UMDNJ Rutgers Medical School um, in Newark and then moving on to uh, my APA internship in SIOS at Long Island <clears throat> excuse me um, and I was working primarily with youth this was a residential who had sexually assaulted someone um, or raped someone in in very violent ways. Um, Prior to that, you know, in California, one of my big internships was working with adults that had harmed in in, in violent ways, difficult, resistant deniers, air quotes. That was like one of my groups. Um, So in some ways, I was working through unconsciously all of the trauma that I had experienced, right, or, or trying to figure things out without realizing it. I was always like, even at UMDNJ, I was working with children, some of the most heinous trauma I'd ever heard in my life. Um, and they would come in, hey, you get off me. No, 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 time out. Can't talk to me like that. Okay, take a step out. We can come back in. When you did it, you, you probably know how this. <laughs> you know, we had a reward system. It was very CBT, but I was constantly conceptualizing psychodynamically is how I understood it. Right? That's what I would say in my interviews, right? <laughs> and it was true. Narrative therapy came into my life. Psychodrama came into my life. I would go to psychodrama conferences. I would present. What I knew and understood through the peer education group, through my own healing, because part of that peer ed group was us doing interactive skits with other college students across the country. Like we were a nationally recognized group. We had an acting coach come in with us. Um we we here we are, quote unquote inner city kids who are quote unquote probably at risk for all the grants that John was writing for us, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? Like we shouldn't have been in college for all intents' purposes. Um, In a college with with professors that actually loved our grittiness, loved what we brought, saw our intelligence, gave us more books and education to foster whatever was there in us. And through that peer education group, through our semester retreats, Things got deep. Our Wednesday meetings were not just staff meetings. We're talking about parent wounds. We're talking about, you know, rage and anger and doing the like alcoholic life raft. And what happens if there's someone in your family that's an alcoholic? And what does that look like? And we're doing exercises and psychodrama and talking to empty chairs, probably very gestalt also. Um, And, you know, we're, we're doing the work. People are sobbing, crying. And then here I was 13 years later. Finishing internship, coming back into Jersey, getting married, and um, taking on a peer education group, and doing therapy at the counseling center, um, and teaching classes for multicultural counseling and group process for their master's program, counseling masters and undergrad, and running an LGBTQIA support group. And, 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 right? University. Is that all? (laughs) Right? I'm sure you could identify. (laughs) So I'm doing all of that for one pay, essentially. Mm -hmm. And A, I realized that me and my students, right, like constantly going back and forth. like I was always able to separate myself, but I was also a big journaler and really big on looking at the the uh, implicit and explicit process, as well as what was happening. And you know, I was really fascinated by all of that. And these students um, became closer and closer. I realized how violent it was to try to just completely cut myself off from individuals whose lives I'd been such a major part of, right? Help almost reparent them, essentially. Um, and not that, that I was hanging out with him or going and just, you know, <laughs> we're partying because I was younger. It, 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 there were still boundaries, but I was able to continue to allow myself to unravel and unpack just a bit and get away from this like staying safe, air quotes, with like being completely neutral all the time, completely sort of, I don't know what the word is, amorphic? <laughs> sort of just like, like, I don't have feelings. I don't have sense. I don't have this. I don't have like, I do. Yeah you know, like constantly putting it back on them. What does that mean to you? What would it mean to you if I was a Leo rising? What would it mean to you? And I started realizing that there were some aspects of this that were actually harmful. And I would bring it into our case conferencing. And I would say like, here are individuals. I was also talking about myself, right? Because I was really, I was, ready, I was in therapy forever, you know, at that point. Um, and doing a lot of spiritual work. A lot, a lot and a lot of ancestral work, because it's not always one and the same. And I remember saying in a staff meeting, we didn't always agree, and we all had different perspectives, and we were a lot of different identities, right? Um, Here we are with students, right, of all ages, that are actually for the first time in their lives, very involved in therapy, in working on themselves, and in caring for other people, right? right? And this is the first time in their lives that they're actually speaking out, they're becoming role models, they're going to class, they're passing entrance exams, they're thinking about, wait, what if I do art instead of math? What if I, you know, what if I combine the two? What would that look like? They're coming to therapy with half of you, right? They're like, all of this growth, like they're setting boundaries with their parents, even though they might have to live in the household with some of these violent caregivers, they're doing this or they're getting into the dorms because it's so violent, whatever it is, they almost have like a an extended family in us, a boundaried one, but an extended family. Mm-hmm. And we're supposed to just like cut them off or you don't want me to answer anything about like my childhood or you like I'm just supposed to act as though I am not a full person. Mm-hmm. And that block, and I said, well, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm just letting you all know. (laughs) And I will come in and process this, but it feels violent. And it feels as though it's continuing to re-trigger this sort of, um, I don't know the word I want to use, this sort of like removed, absent parent. I'm the parent. You're the child. You do what I say. Mm -hmm. And I was very clear I wasn't their parent, but I was providing skills and helping them grieve the loss of a parent, even if the parent was alive. Mm-hmm. We would talk about it all the time, you know? And so, and sometimes we would draw about it, right? <laughs> sometimes we where is your mother in your body? Let's draw that out. Where does that feel like, right? I was very much that kind of therapist, that kind of psychologist. And um, I remember my my boss, who was a elder and a black woman would say, I trust you. Mm-hmm. Do it, I trust you. Like everyone's coming to me and they're changing they're expanding they're evolving they're talking to me more like and then eventually the rest of my team like i don't know how you're doing what you do but go ahead (laughs) and then we were bringing in culture then i was bringing in people to talk about colorism even if five of the people at the retreat of that were my students were white we're still we're going to talk about this you're going to learn about this even if it's not about you it's okay to not center whiteness or white people all the time what if we centered us right and and, and sometimes we did it right let like, you know okay now i'm going to bring in someone on the retreat and we're going to talk about queerness and queer identity and queer sex and right now we're going to talk about this now we're going to talk about denial and parent wounds now we're going to do a rage retreat right and so i think through my peer educators i realized very quickly that we heal on a deeper level in community because our original attachment wounds, you know, occurred when we were being removed Mm. or asked to leave community settings. Not that things never happened in community, (laughs) right? Not that community members never harmed us. But when you think culturally, globally, if we can get macro for a second, this massive realization was hitting me not, I'm probably not alone. I think my students too, they were just using different words, right? And this is for my one-to-one students too. Like, like I, I was seeing so much here where the more that we brought in, like, the generational component to their substance abuse issues, more that we brought in the generational or the ancestral component to abuse of the feminine or abuse of the body of the feminine, right? Or, you know, sometimes they would say, no, 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 Dr. Jen, I want to call it what it is. We're going to call it rape. Okay, then we're going to call it, yeah, yeah, right? (laughs) Or whatever it is, every time I brought in, is this ours or is this something that we've learned? Mm -hmm. Or is it both, right? Has it become ours now? right and what do we do with it if it's ours now how do do we take responsibility for it do we not do we look at it do we name it do we what do we want to do with this right and so i think that a lot of the people i worked with over the years would say um, i probably wouldn't say this they would say or i've heard it from them you made therapy alive for me alive like you brought it alive for me where it wasn't just a mind exercise which sometimes they need that, right? Sometimes I'm, you know, um, no shade at all to cognitive distortions <laughs> and looking at, you know, all of that, because I had that hung up in my office. It's like, where are we? You know, where are you? Are you minimizing? Are we black or white thinking? Mm-hmm. Um, but I do feel particularly people of the global majority and individuals that, you know, are neurodiverse, individuals that are queer identified, like people that have been othered and are very clear of their otherness and um, can get harmed or killed or deported or any of those things for their otherness, right? There's a risk. There's a racial trauma, perhaps, or a gender trauma, some kind of component there. Um, I find that, A, there is a, a drawnness to groups, and there's a drawnness to, uh, being drawn to needing, wanting this emancipation. Like wanting to be liberated in some way and desiring. And so at this time, I'm also getting politicized, right? And working with various groups and students or people that are a little bit younger than me, majority of them, some Filipino identified, some that are Arab, some black, you know, and they're teaching me about neoliberalism and my education. (laughs) They're teaching me like, we're like, they're like, no, do you understand what white body supremacy is? And okay, let's break this down. How does that show up here? And then I was also taking on doing racism trainings with People's Institute of Survival and Beyond. My old uh, mentor, Dr. Susan Eskulin, who's a genius, particularly in child adolescent mistreatment, forensics, uh, Jewish identified woman, really, really, really changed my life. I was like, Jen, you got to come to these undoing racism trainings. I'm like, Sue, I love you, but um, (laughs) these trainings are not going to teach me anything. I don't know. And she's like, no, it's going to give you language. And it did. And it gave me examples. And you probably hear in the book, I talk about them a lot because I like to give people credit where it's deserved. But I've been talking a lot. So let me just say, (laughs) let me just say in wrapping this up, um, this part up is that what I realized deeply that people Heal deep rooted attachment, historical ancestral attachment wounds in community with others. And it doesn't look like we're, as you know, holding hands and we're skipping away and we all love each other. It looks like, it's <laughs> like, right, right? Even with colleagues. Mm-hmm. Right? It looks like conflict sometimes. It looks like someone is avoided. And someone is like, wait, why are you avoiding? Why are you this? Why are you that? Are we okay? And you know, someone's moving towards the other thing. I realize is that we need to have our histories validated. That yes, I understand that a lot of um trauma conscious work now is saying, like, well, we don't want to have someone repeat their stories. And I would agree that too soon or too much is very violent for everybody. And there is something to be said about working out that trauma history, whether yours or your parents, not that you're working it out, but you're having an understanding of it, yeah? Um, Or your ancestry, right? Whether we're talking about attempted genocides, whether we're talking about completely, yeah, Holocaust, whatever we're talking about, Right. Armenian genocide, Rwandan genocide, right? Wars in El Salvador, we can keep going on. But when I would have students connect that or or people I was working with, with like, oh, wow, I was born in blah, 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 blah. At that time, there was a war in this place. Oh, wow, there was a takeover. And all these people of my religion were slaughtered at this time. Mm -hmm. Mm. How interesting. What do you think it was like for your mom to be carrying you and be nine months with you while there were bombs outside of her window? But while her sister was being harmed and pulled out of the house and ta 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 ta. right. Um, And I found that once people were ready to tell their stories using some form of art or dance or song, or sometimes just sitting in the middle of a circle and making eye contact, which is something they'd never done in their lives years prior. That sometimes an audience is required, right? I think that's why we have love songs and blue songs and spoken word poetry, right? (laughs) And of course, the audience has to be willing to, or the group has to be willing to contain it. And the other piece is, where's an unlearning process that I believe we all need to go through? And that's where I like really started understanding like the decolonial process and that... If many of us were extracted, removed, forcibly or not, from our homelands, not everybody, but many of us, um, including some people that have come to be known as white,
1: Mm
2: -hmm. right, and if, or if, if items were extracted, minerals, resources, gold, diamonds, whatever, or people are harvested, or people are their number one export right like in the philippines people are number one export right to go to other countries to be nurses and flight attendants and this and that and so in that way how does that impact our attachment how does that impact um how we see ourselves how does that start to impact Um, are needing to get closer to whatever we understand as more powerful and nine times out of 10 that might be whiteness (laughs) in all of its supremacy Mm -hmm. right and how have we learned that we're only as worthy as what people or them they can extract from us Mm -hmm. right and if i'm constantly used to being worthy or thinking that i'm only worthy for what i can offer then i'm going to overwork Then I'm going to overgive. Then I might not notice red flags when something in a relationship is a no-go, right? Then I might work and work and work and expect someone to say, hey, I'm going to pay you this amount of money. Do less. That'll never happen, right? (laughs) Right? And so our bodies become inflamed. Our emotions become inflamed. Our relationships become inflamed, Right. Um, And it becomes almost impossible to feel safe, whatever that means for us in our bodies in our relationships, you know, sometimes even within our own minds. And I would see that with kids all the time when I work with them, right? Like parents are like, fix them. They didn't say that, but essentially some of them did. And I'd be like,
1: well, maybe your wand. (laughs) Right.
2: Right? (laughs) And it's like, well, Well, they're doing great now in group. Here we are eight months later. So now this behavior is only showing up at home. Can we talk about what that might be about? Right. You know? Um, So, yeah, what I want to say is that this emotional decolonial process, as I've been calling it, um, isn't trying to replace the land decolonization, right. Or like the, the, that whole process. Um, But it is rather an invitation to look at where we're being asked to tamper down our big emotions, where we're being asked to be in closer proximity to whiteness or Eurocentricity, how we've been educated, who have been the main theories, professors, teachers, theorists. Yeah, yeah practices and so in this emotional decolonial process the invitation is to start to unlearn Mm -hmm. is to start to question everything is to start to look at how we've been taught to be separate from one another from the land from our big feelings like grief and rage and that we're not just dealing with what is happening currently we are currently daily digesting our own childhood and, and adolescent experiences, as well as those that have not been able to be metabolized from our lineages.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. Oh, there's so much there, Dr. Jen. One place it makes me go is uh, first, just thank you for sharing so openly and, and vulnerably. And the gift that you received of these adults and mentors who saw your full humanity um, and how you were then able to give that back in these groups and with others and recognizing that yeah no wonder one-on-one CBT is not going to solve this and that that there's so much more and it would you know I'm sure that whiteness would want us to, to stay small and not address this but our mental health systems, our school systems, so many systems were were built and, and it's embedded, and that we have to, like you said, and I love that you say this in the, in your book as well. We have to. It's it's this ongoing process of learning, unlearning, relearning, um, because what was there already wasn't su- sufficient and it wasn't capturing the whole story. Um, so so thank you for helping just kind of broaden and especially from that attach attachment lens it's like we can't talk about attachment without factoring in the ways that systemic collective and ancestral attachment losses and traumas have impacted it's not only just the one-on-one relationships which is often you know how we think about attachment how the research has been done on attachment so so yours stories just really helped bring that to life. So thank you.
2: Thank uh, you. Thank you. Um I also wanted to quickly say like I I especially for children and we know how sensitive their nervous systems and brains are, right? And how sensitive everything, especially before the age of three when they're pre-verbal. Right. And I remember a supervisor really teaching me about the insidiousness I don't know if that might yeah of trauma pre-verbally yeah and um this were the challenges of working with that kind of pre-verbal trauma and how that might show up and um, I remember asking well what about like kids this is like 20 something year old Jen right like <laughs> I was like well okay well what about those of us that are like direct descendants to like the transatlantic slave trade and like my supervisor was just like <laughs> eyes big, like, oh, well, well, uh, and, and, and no to no shade uh, on her, you know, and, and I was like, well, what about individuals that are descendants of such and such and this and this and that? And like, how does, how does someone being identified as quote unquote, uh, illegal impact who they are and how they walk in the world? Cause a human being can't be illegal, right? Like, like you know, like what? I would ask all these questions. And I wouldn't get in trouble, but I did have this (laughs) reputation (laughs) for um, kind of pushing a bit, right? And that that I wouldn't just be able to like let it go, Mm -hmm. you know? And so all of this to say, I deeply, deeply love these fields. I've dedicated hundreds of thousands of dollars and a lot of my life to these fields. (laughs) Um, But what I love more is people. I love watching humanity evolve. I love the ways that we try to continue to grow. There's also a billion horrendous things. Yeah. Um, But above all, I do have faith in humanity above all i have faith in the power of healing because i've witnessed it right i've witnessed people that should deeply despise each other and have in restorative Mm -hmm. justice circles people that have harmed each other's family members killed each other's family members find a place of i don't know if i'm a forgiveness But I'm definitely at a place where I'm not ready to retaliate. Um, I don't want to do this to my life. I don't want to do this to your life. You're human. This occurred and it's complicated and I'm effing enraged and I want to live, right? (laughs) And I don't want this to go on to my children. Mm -hmm. I don't want to infect them with what it feels like is, is this virus, right? This psychological enslavement. And I feel like when a people have insight understanding and education about themselves when they know who they are where they're from prior to the point of trauma
1: mm-hmm.
2: prior to the point of okay well like africans were taken like okay and what about before that and what about what's happening now africa's super rich in a lot of resources intelligence technology like why do we only have this like one single story Mm -hmm. about a people Mm -hmm. right and why do we keep on telling it well we know why (laughs) because it benefits certain people so I find that when we bring together the good the bad the ugly of a people and our peoples and don't just say like oh yeah we got to talk about oppression and racism no no no. I as a therapist you as a therapist you as a therapist we're gonna look at how our people have contributed to harm we're going to look at how our people may have been harmed. We don't have to get stuck there. Mm-hmm. We don't have to roll in around in it for years. Mm-hmm. But we do, I believe, in order to really heal and have inner and outer revolution, need to address it and acknowledge it. Because as we know, therapeutically, what happens when we don't acknowledge massive grief, rage, harm, right? It just... It right. just grows, right. It, you know, it doesn't metabolize in our bodies. It makes us sick. We, we continue to be engaged in the same behaviors. So all of this to say, um, I think we owe it to one another, particularly within our fields, whether we're teachers, therapists, nurses, coaches, practitioners, you know, we owe it to ourselves to be loving investigators of our own histories Mm-hmm. right we owe it to ourselves and who we work with or serve to hold one another lovingly accountable that doesn't mean i have to like cuss you out or you know it means hey no wait that was a microaggression that didn't feel good time out wait <laughs> like i know we're friends but like that i didn't like that can we talk about that right um or that even means taking space from each other when things happen and we can't talk about it yet But it does mean learning how to have more conflict resolution, right? And learning um, what our ancestors brought that was magnificent, that we are taught that is like gross or icky or too primal or, ooh, that's weird. Or, you know, oh, wait, you guys do what? You arrange marriages? Oh, like, you know, all of that. Even I did it as a kid. I was taught, right? I was conditioned socially that this American way was the right way. And that's what we were going to do. And so, yeah, this book is a love letter and a call to action to like, we got to do a different, there's some things that are expired. There's some things we could still use for now, mm-hmm. but what would true healing look like that is almost bilateral? Cause many of us are burned out, mm-hmm. massive caseloads, tons of vicarious and secondary trauma. Teachers too, (laughs) right? Sometimes 40 kids in classroom. Like how do we make sure that they're well and we're passing on the knowledge or the help or the resources we have? And how do we also make sure that we're not going home to like just a bottle every night or, you know, or just like over exercising and not talking to anyone or working again for another five hours because we have notes and reports to do. Like, how do we ensure that we stay well and alive? Because in a lot of our villages, what we do now, food was made for us. Or maybe someone tended to the rip in our clothes, right? Because it was like bartering. There was a sense of community. Like, oh, this is our village helper, curandero, shaman, priest. I don't know, you know, priestess. Like, this is our village helper, right? You just came back from war. They're going to be with the family now for a couple of months. We're going to take care of them too. So how do we reintegrate with society when we've been taught that we need to sort of be this like amorphous, unfeeling emotionally euthanized <laughs> which is not true person that's like my goal for us to start shifting it make it more equitable make it more conscious and allow for there to be less violence as a whole in the work that we do
1: mm. well sign me up i am on board <laughs> and i think you you talked too about when these feelings of grief and rage and all the things go that go unacknowledged, not only do those come out then in, in other other ways and we're not naming it, we're not normalizing it and it's really just adaptations for survival, but we also, we, I mean, and I and I know I've been part of that too, with my own privilege and with working within different systems. We pathologize it, yes, and we make it more about that individual person. Yeah, yeah. what's wrong with you um, versus what's what's wrong with the systems? And and there's so much of that in your book. So I know we're just kind of skimming the surface, um, but but that so much of of our of our lineage as you've talked about those unrecognized traumas and attachment losses and all of that like it's okay to express those but we also need the practitioners to to know better how to to deal with that and to work in systems that aren't so constrained and and how to deal with with their own stuff yeah you know sometimes we think when by the time you've arrived as a mm whether it's social worker, counselor, teacher, you know, that it's like now you're in this place of all knowing. And yes. We, yes. That's when all of our stuff gets stirred up too. They don't teach us that in school.
2: <laughs> so right. we, um, they teach us that. They teach us to be that way with yeah. each other. And I'm going to say this lovingly. This is a little bit of a like tongue in cheek joke. Sometimes my hardest audiences are therapists, right? <laughs> that, that are brilliant that are great at their theories or what they do or how they practice, but trying to like allowing a crack and trying to get in a new way of seeing things and a new possibility. I almost feel this like, Oh no, no, no. You're not gonna teach me, particularly my identities, who I am. Maybe perhaps I look younger than what I am and I talk a little bit more down to earth. That there's more relationality in how I engage. I'm not just spewing numbers all the time. And I can do that. Mm -hmm. But that's the point of being 45 and no longer working for an institution, right? (laughs) That I get to unlatch from coloniality's claw sometimes right like not all the time it's still within me (laughs) right but I get to think about what would be most healing and what would be most healing for me and I don't think that's selfish for therapists or healers helpers teachers to think about like what do I need to make this work a little bit more enjoyable after doing it for this many years Mm-hmm. Right and how, how do I connect more? How do I be more down to earth? for me, that's just being more of myself mm-hmm. and bringing more of that in.
1: Yeah, and and it helps dismantle some of those power differentials, especially the way that, like I said, the mental health system has been set up. and And your book really made me think about this deeper too, because I remember, especially as a young therapist, because like you said, that's how we're taught—we don't self disclose—and like feeling this disconnect from my own Mm. you know self about how can i be me in help if i'm not allowed to be me and like you said that doesn't mean that we don't do that with boundaries but that we we have to fully show up in our authenticity and that way we can connect like genuinely connect not connect with this wall up you know and Mm. and so i i like I said, just will continue to thank you for this book and for your work, because it just names all of this. So, you know, so powerfully and so beautifully another way that, that, and I know we have to start to wrap up, unfortunately, but I want to share another way that your book touched me is, you know, it's not just professionally because like I said, this whole, you know, professional, personal, keep them separate that that's the old paradigm And so as I was reading your book, you know, I talk a lot about my, my maternal grandmother being, you know, when I talk about my attachment memories, who comes up for me as, and in your book, you talk about home, you know, this deep sense of, of safety and feeling seen and loved and appreciated that, that for me is my grandmother and not that she was perfect. And I got a different version and that's the whole intergenerational, you know, ways that things get get passed on and then also healed as you learn, as you go, because my, my mother and her siblings got a much different version, but the version that I received, even though she, like I said, she wasn't perfect. She was an alcoholic. She could be very, very critical. Luckily not of me, but when she would drink, she could be of just that critical, you know, energy of others, but she still offered, me a lot of love and safety and security and predictability. But the thing your book helped me recognize too, is she was the historian Mm. in our family.
2: Mm. And so
1: she would tell all the stories of my ancestors and what she came to know of my grandfather's ancestors and sometimes you know she would tell them at nauseum where you're like grandma i've already heard this story you know <laughs> how, how elders can do and i'm now starting to think like maybe that's intentional like we just think they're old and they can't remember that they've already shared it but no they want this to land they have that inner wisdom somewhere whether they're conscious of it or not and they want it to land And so, you know, now my grandma's passed away and I just would give anything to be able to hear more of those stories, because I think we are all longing for more of that understanding because it helps us feel, you know, get to know ourselves better on this much deeper level and understand. And um, I had a quote from your book um, that I was going to Oh, I've got so many notes all over the place. But, <laughs> but your book really, had a beautiful quote about, um, you know, the ways that this helps, you know, normalize and we move out of that shame. We move out of that place of of fear and victimization. And now we feel seen and we do that by connecting to our history. And so yeah. your book really helped enlighten me on that um so i thank you for that and so so many other things that are in this book i think it's like i said a gift and it may be a gift that we're not all ready to receive too because you speak truths that we need to hear maybe we need to hear it in like bite-sized chunks maybe we need to process it in community as you've talked about so much in this interview Uh, but we need it because we need to shake things up we need we need disruptors like you dr jen and i'm so grateful i'm just curious if there's anything you want to send us off with anything you want to say or share um besides your book because it's releasing next week and and i hope that um, our, our audience will go out and consume it because it's amazing.
2: Thank you. Well, number one, thank you for having me. Thank you for voraciously reading it, you know, and, and I'm like, you know, trying to get through as much as you could because it is a lot. Um, I will say that I hope that people will allow themselves to be drawn to chapters that feel the most like, Oh, Oh, no, no, no. I know all about that. (laughs) Or I don't need to read more about that. Or, oh, rage, grief, don't have those problems. Nope, not me. Or energy boundaries. Why do I need that? Right? Um, Or diagnostic enslavement. Mm, right? (laughs) So my hope is that you allow yourself to land where you're supposed to land. Um, Sometimes I don't read books from beginning to end, right? Like, you know, that's how my neurodivergence works. Sometimes I like to go in in one particular place or just open it and just, like, get in. Um, So I invite people. If you're not interested in, like, the more historical parts, then maybe move to Section 2, right? The trunk, right? Instead of, you know, uh, the roots. are. But if you're interested in another area, allow yourself to also be challenged, and allow yourself—if you know—if you're reading it, to be willing to change. Yeah, um, because I find that um, our need to know everything and our need to have it already figured out—that there's nothing possibly left for me to learn in this area or that area—is um, really damaging and it's harmful and i and i guess the call to action i want to provide is that i think our youth youth meaning 20s and under um are really onto something with this new world right and how they understand things fluidity emotionality right highly emotional and i think that they're showing us where it's a strength I think they're showing us where there is no space and place for more oppression and genocide and violence. I think they're showing us that they're not ready to just lay down quietly. You know, I think that these youth growing up in this world are telling us that something needs to change. And I hope that we go in our field from a place of general alienation to deep emancipation mm. yes
1: yeah yes it's i know we say it's it's not a sprint it's a marathon but it's not a marathon either because marathon has an end yeah. but we have to take care of ourselves on the marathon we have to fuel up we have but we have to recognize that there. this is ongoing yeah and i I like i said a just want to continue to express my deepest gratitude for the work that you're doing in this book i found the quote so this might be a good way to to end our our time together although i wish we could keep going on and on (laughs) but when we understand the origins we can begin to release shame self-blame feelings and behaviors of unconscious victimization and fear Mm. Oh, and so many more beautiful wisdom nuggets in your book. So, thank you so much, Dr. Jen, for joining me today. I look forward to continuing to learn and unlearn and relearn from you and with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for this podcast,
2: the work you do in the world. And thank you, everyone, for listening in. You're appreciated. Thank you. Take care. Thank
0: you, thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. And join the Attachment Theory in Action podcast Facebook group. For additional resources and training opportunities, visit tkcchatik.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of attachment theory.